Jonah chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to read the chapter together, if I can see it. Jonah chapter 2, then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, and he said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hadst cast me into the deep, and in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Again, I trust that God will bless his word, whenever you're telling that story to the boys and girls, that last verse is a classic with the fish vomiting Jonah out onto the dry land. It's almost comical when you come to this book to think about Jonah running away from God. It is almost uh, like a farce, comical in its character. And it seems amazing when you read about what Jonah said to the sailors about his God. It seems amazing that he, in action, would seem to contradict what he says. So he's running away from a God that he speaks about in these wonderful ways. And there seems to be a tension, there seems to be a conflict between the intellectual, theoretical knowledge that Jonah has of his God and the practical steps he takes in his life. So functionally, Jonah's God to him is not the God that he says he knows. It's not the God that he speaks about, not functionally. And practically, as he makes decisions in his life, he's not making these decisions based upon the God that he says he knows. Because Jonah's God appears to be very small, not very big at all. And functionally, after all, Jonah has told the sailors in verse 9 of chapter 1 that he fears the God of heaven. But in reality, Jonah's God functionally is not the God of heaven. Not according to his actions. But functionally, Jonah views his God as a God of a tiny nation state called Israel. And only concerned with the well-being of that comparatively small community of people on earth. Functionally, that is Jonah's God. And if Jonah can just get on a boat to Tarshish, there's a good chance that he will escape the narrow focus of this small God. With that small interest on earth. And I mentioned last night, and there is a comparison that's worthy of study, I mentioned last night the actions of Adam and Eve after they'd sinned in the Garden of Eden. And they do the same thing. I mean, here is Adam who has seen the creative works of God, and he has seen all the good things that God has done. He's only ever known good from God. He's only ever been blessed by God, and he's seen the power and the understanding, the knowledge of God, and when they sin, it says in chapter 3 and verse 8 of Genesis, <coughs> excuse me, 
that they heard the sound of the Lord God <coughs> walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Same thing, from the presence of the Lord God. Do you remember Jonah was running from the presence of the Lord? And so here is Adam and Eve, and they're doing the same thing. Functionally, in terms of their decision-making, their God is not the God they say they know and the God that they can describe. So there's a disconnect between these two things, between the head knowledge and the heart decisions, between what he knows and how he lives. Now, that's not an unfamiliar thing. I mean, after all, when you get to know the God of the Bible and then you examine your decision-making in light of what you know, then most of us have that disconnect in our life so that the decisions that we make don't reflect the knowledge that we have. So we make decisions thinking that there will be no consequences, yet you read in the Bible that God is the God of consequence and so on. So there's a difference between what we know and how we live. So Jonah's, we saw last night, Jonah is on a path and he's on a path down the way. Very much like Samson when you read about him. And Jonah in verse 3 of chapter 1, he rises and he goes down to Tarshish and he gets on a ship. So he's going down and he goes down into the boat and then in the storm arises and then Jonah goes down again into the deeper part or the inner part of the boat and then he goes down again and he goes to sleep and then he's thrown into the sea so he goes down again. In fact, the whole process is a process of going down. And as I mentioned, Samson's like that when you read about his backsliding. The word down is associated with it because when you go away from God, it's a downward spiral. It never lifts you up, it always takes you down. And again, I quoted to you Psalm 139 uh, last night, and it's worthy of quoting again, verse 7 to 12, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. The darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. Now, that's kind of ironic as we're in the semi-darkness today. But the idea, as I mentioned last night, is very simple. The night and day don't mean the same thing to God as they do to us. Light and darkness, neither. Darkness doesn't hide us. When God sees us, he sees through all the cover, he sees through all the camouflage of what we are. And so Jonah, when we pick it up in chapter 2, is in the belly of the fish. Now we saw at the end last night, that's what happened. You remember he was cast out into the sea, and then it says in verse 17 of chapter 1, the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You know, I love when I'm doing a school assembly, you say to the, the boys and girls doing this story, hands up if you've ever had a fish inside you. Fish fingers, fish, fish, not sure. And then they can, uh, hands up if you've ever been in a fish. And always there's somebody puts their hand up. And it's almost inevitable. I've been in a fish. No, you haven't. So, <laughs> sort of thing. But um, here is Jonah, and Jonah is in the belly of the fish. And what you have in chapter 2 is Jonah's psalm, Jonah's song. It's the psalm of the prodigal prophet. And it's not the psalm of the prodigal son, but the prodigal prophet. 
And this psalm was composed in the most unusual circumstances. So he's in total darkness. He's in the belly of this fish. And this psalm was recorded later for our edification, but it's expressed in those extreme circumstances. And I have to say to you, it's not a great example of a psalm. It's not a great example for us to follow. We're going to see that. And in fact, Jonah, even when he gets to the end and says salvation of the, is of the Lord, you know, we take that and make great application from it. Really, it was a very limited expression of appreciation for physical deliverance from danger. So as we look down this, actually we're going to see an example of someone who's self-obsessed, someone who's self-focused, someone who doesn't really care of other people that he's put in danger, i.e. the sailors. And there's no words of repentance either here in relation to his disobedience. So what we have here is a superficial religious expression of devotion. And we will see it's actually very characteristic of the way the nation of Israel uh, conducted itself with God. For example, when you look at this, you discover that the focus on Jonah, the focus of Jonah, Sam, I should say, down through this chapter, is on his physical deliverance. Now remember this, that the physical problem was caused by a spiritual problem. So he's talking about the symptoms rather than the cause and core. You remember that he was commissioned by God and this wasn't the first time. He'd spoken for God. He'd had a relationship with God. 2 Kings 14 tells us that. And in those days of Jeroboam II, he'd spoken for God and there'd been peace and prosperity despite the wickedness of the king. So he'd been used by God. He wasn't a novice. This wasn't the first time. But God had asked him to do something that he found too hard for whatever reason. We think we come to the reason in chapter 4 because of his antipathy toward these Gentiles. But because he didn't want to do it, he runs from God. And the spiritual problem was his disobedience and rebellion. And that caused the physical issues that followed. But his focus is in his poetry on the physical deliverance that he received from that physical problem. So, for example, he speaks in verse 3 and in verse number 5 about his near-death experience, about being engulfed by the waves and the breakers. He talks about seaweed being wrapped all around him in verse number 5. He talks about being near fainting when he cries to God for salvation in verse 2, verse 4, verse 7. And all of that, despite three days to think it over in the belly of the fish. I mean, he's not got a lot else to do. He's in there in the extremity of that circumstance and his focus is still on the physical symptoms or consequences of his spiritual problem. So he focuses on physical deliverance. I'm going to bring an application, but just follow the thought. Hang those thoughts up and and we'll follow them down and then we'll pick up application as we come come round. The second thing is to note this, that his psalm is self-centred. So he describes in a, a red one, It's not mine, obviously, and you'll see why in a moment. I read one description of the the chapter in this way. Jonah describes his dilemma, his danger, his deliverance, and his delight. Now, obviously, that's not mine. And you can structure the chapter in that way. But it's all about him. I said last night quite a bit about our disobedience and running from God impacting the community that we create by our disobedience. That is people who are on the ship. 
Remember that he stepped off the shore onto the ship and that was like a Rubicon. That was like a step into something different because now he's implicated other people in his own rebellion. And he cannot repent by himself now because he needs their agreement to turn the ship round and get back so that he can follow the pathway God had for him. Now other people are invested. Now other people are at risk. Now other people are going to be affected by his decisions. And we saw last night that so often that's the same with us. We create a community that is people who are invested in us, connected to us, and therefore impacted by our decision making. That's true in the spiritual sphere. Jonah, however, is not taking into account the people that he's impacted by his disobedience. He's describing himself, his issues. He's not even worried about what happened to the sailors. doesn't mention it. Now, of course, this is very different from a lot of the Psalms you read in the book of Psalms. Most Psalms that you read in the book of Psalms are written by people who have good relationships with God. Now, they've come through difficult times or are going through difficult times. They're expressing anxiety, fears. They're expressing sometimes discontent. They're expressing worship and adoration. But when you read the book of Psalms, you discover this, that most of them are God-centered, not self-centered. In this psalm, in this song, in this prayer in chapter 2, God's character is scarcely mentioned. It's not until you get to chapter 4 that Jonah begins to speak about the character of God. And he speaks about God's grace and compassion and long-suffering and loving kindness. But he does so as being a reason for his discontent, not his worship and his adoration. So, for example, in chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, you notice this, that he says, He prayed unto the Lord, and this is after, we'll come to this, this is after Nineveh has been spared and so on. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? So he's saying, Lord, you heard me. I said this. I knew this was going to happen. Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thou of the evil. He said, I knew the sort of God you are, and I knew that if I came here and I preached and they repented, that you would deliver them. And that's why he said I didn't want to come. <coughs> So when he's actually speaking about the character of God, it's not in a positive sense. The psalmists were different. They found the character of God to be the basis of their praise, their adoration, their obedience, their safety. And so they they delight in God. They delight in the character of God. They find refuge in the character of God. Jonah found the character of God to be the pretext for his disobedience and for his protest. I know that's the sort of God you are, Therefore, I ran. That's what he's saying. So he's self-centered, and he's also taken up with his physical deliverance. Now, he does allude to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, but he distorts it, and he abuses it. And rather than attributing his own physical danger to his own rebellion, what he does is this. He depicts God as being the cause of his danger and of his difficulties. Because he's saying, after all, God's sovereign. So God's in control of all this. Therefore, he's at fault. It says in verse 3, Jonah says, Thou hadst cast me into the deep. 
says to God, you threw me in here. Now, God never threw him in there. The sailors threw him in, and he requested to be thrown in. He says, the current engulfed me, all the breakers and billows passed over me. He's blaming God for his predicament, and he's pulling out a theological principle as his justification for doing so. I believe in the sovereignty of God. Therefore, my circumstances are down to God. Self-denial, no responsibility, self-centered, yet cloaked and sugar-coated with self-righteousness and religious hypocrisy. So the words all sound religious, the words all sound spiritual, but when you dig into them, you discover this, they're actually expressing sinful things. It's subtle. Adam did the same thing in chapter 3 of Genesis. And God challenges Adam about his disobedience and the responsibility for his actions. This is what Adam says in Genesis 3 and verse 12. The woman whom thou gavest to me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. So Adam says, well, look, it's not my fault. I never asked for a, for a wife. I was just going about my business, and then I woke up, and there you go. I got one rib less and one wife more. <laughs> Nothing to do with me. You know, it's the old concept of what the world says or what people say, I fell in love as if you're walking along, you fall into a pit and you've absolutely nothing to do with it. You're just walking along the street and you fell in love. It's passive, it happened to you. No, you can't help it. And you know, people say, well, do you know, the Bible says that I shouldn't enter into a relationship with someone that's not a Christian and I shouldn't marry someone that's not a Christian. The Bible is crystal clear in that. Someone says, well, I couldn't help it. I was just walking along and my life circumstances were such. I was passive and I fell in love. You see, that kind of attitude, claiming some of God's attributes and distorting them, taking away personal responsibility is exactly what Jonah said. And Jonah is basically saying to God, there was me, he never mentions his rebellion, and all of a sudden, God's brought about a storm and God has me thrown into the deep here. Self-centered. The distortion for his own justification of some attributes of God that he knew. Also, Jonah's psalm reveals his underlying contempt for people who are not Jewish, who are not of Israel. Gentiles. And his own self-righteousness in relation to them. He doesn't mention the sailors or their physical deliverance from death or even their newfounded faith and worship of the living God. He's not rejoicing at their deliverance or their worship. He never mentions it. And actually, as I've quoted to you in chapter 4, Jonah really despised those Gentiles. He would have preferred their death and damnation in Nineveh to their deliverance and salvation. He says in chapter 2, verse 8 and verse 9, and this is where he expresses his disdain and his superiority complex. He says, those, not him, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I, there's a contrast, oh, I'm different, but I 
will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving. So he is contrasting vain idol worship with him who worships the living God. Fine words. Jonah, you're the person who ran from God. These sailors were pagan and came to know God and are worshipping God and are offering the sacrifice of praise and you're in the belly of the fish because you're disobedient and rebellious to the God that you know and profess to serve. He has a superiority complex with a great disdain for the Gentiles. The strange thing is just this, that Jonah, even though he was an Israelite and considered himself superior to the idolatrous Gentile heathen, he is completely self-deluded. Completely self-deluded. His own understanding of himself is false. He has no true perspective. For example... You read chapter 1, you discover this. The only people praying to God in chapter 1 are the people that he despises. Not him. The heathen were eager to uncover the cause of the storm and the sin. Not Jonah. Jonah went to sleep. You discover that the heathen wanted to practice their religion and then when they were shown that that religion was false, then they turned to God and again they're actively engaged with God. The heathen had compassion in Jonah. They didn't want to throw him into the sea. Jonah had absolutely no concern for the heathen. And you discover this, and I'm quoting, Jonah does not wish God to bless these Gentiles as well as the Jews. Jonah does not wish God to bless the Gentiles through the Jews. Thus, when God commands Jonah, who is a Jew, to preach to Nineveh, a Gentile city, Jonah runs away. No wonder we find no praise for the conversion of Gentiles, but rather a statement to God about the superiority of the Jew to the Gentile. Now, before we come on, let's just kind of bring a challenge from all of that and an application to us today. Focus on physical deliverance rather than the spiritual cause of the problem. Now, just take a moment to think about some circumstances in your life that have been adverse, whatever they may have been. And you're speaking to God about that circumstance. And your prayer never descends below the level of consequence to cause. So you don't allow yourself, you don't choose to take your mind, to take your heart behind the scenes so you're only dealing with the external if you think about some sort of theatre type of production and you've got what the audience see but actually what causes what the audience see behind the scenes that's never seen but that actually produces what is seen so when you think about your life and you think about consequence you need, I need to stop and think about cause. Why has this happened? Is God dealing with me in discipline? Is his hand upon me? Is it the case that there's something in my life that God wants to remove? Is it the case there's something in my character that God wants to produce? Self-analysis. Looking inwardly, not outwardly. Taking the time to consider 
that there perhaps is a spiritual cause to these material, physical consequences. Now, they're not, it's not that there always is, but the question ought to be asked by us, is that the case? Now, in Jonah's situation, it clearly was. Now, I think perhaps we live our lives with our knowledge of God disconnected from the way that we practice life. So that we speak about the all-knowing God, we speak about God who's intimate in our lives, we speak about God as our Father, we speak about God's discipline upon his children, and we kind of tend to know the kind of ABCs of it in terms of what the Bible says. You then translate that over to your life and say, yeah, that's true, but God will never actually intervene in my life in discipline and bring consequence to draw me up short. Not really. So that then if something happens, I mean, I've gone through, for example, a redundancy. I went through a redundancy. And some people have gone through different life circumstances, whatever these may be. Could be in your workplace, could be in your family, could be in whatever it may be. And life is full of adverse circumstances. But for the Christian, the question needs to be asked. Has God got something for me to know, to learn in this life circumstance. The second thing is just this, to note that in his circumstance, Jonah was self-obsessed. It's all about him. So he thought that way, and he made his decisions on that basis. What was good for him, what was bad for him, what connected to him, what concerned him, and he was looking inwardly not in a good way and he wasn't taking into account and I mentioned this already the people within his direct community that had been impacted by his decision making thirdly do you and I hold on to bits of the Bible that justify our decision making and we don't take uh, the teaching of the Bible holistically we don't take the whole lot together and the balance of scripture but we fixate in one thing and we use that one thing to justify whatever road we've gone down. And perhaps more serious for Jonah than these other things was his utter contempt for people who were different. For the Gentiles. He didn't want them to get saved. Because of whatever reason. It could have been national, it could have been religious, it could have been lifestyle, it could have been history, whatever it may be. Now, the story of history is just this, that people, us, everybody, divides themselves up into communities of people who are the same. That's what we do, whether it's by the same language, by the same culture, customs, whatever it may be. Likes, preferences, lifestyles, choices. We tend to group ourselves together in those ways. But for the Christian, the Christian ought to be and should have a love for people and a care for people that breaks over these boundaries, transcends these boundaries, is not hemmed in by those boundaries, those national things, those religious backgrounds, those cultural issues. These things should not bind us and nor should the moral lifestyle of the people to whom we should reach. And we should not hold people 
to live their life according to a completely different sense of right and wrong, we should not hold such people in contempt, nor consider them not worthy of the gospel. You see, that's really what Jonah thought. The gospel wasn't for these people. The gospel was for his sort of people. But actually, God demonstrates in this book that his reach goes far beyond the boundaries that we establish. Because God is a global God. And his gospel is a global message. And it reaches the worst and the best of sinners. And it reaches sinners of all sorts of practices and habits and lifestyle choices. And in our society today, we know the challenges that that brings. And we know the choices that people make. And the lifestyles that they have. But still we cannot, we must not become like Jonah. And be narrowly focused in our understanding of the gospel. Jonah was self-righteous. Jonah was just as much a sinner as the people of Nineveh. Now it's interesting that when you come to Jonah's conclusion, what Jonah's going to do, the only promise Jonah makes is actually when you read it in this light, it's amazing. He's in the belly of the fish. I mean, should he not be saying, Lord, get me out of here and the first thing I'm going to, I'm going to Nineveh in complete obedience? No. When you read his words, perhaps if a first reading or whatever, you might feel that his words imply that he was promising to obey God. Salvation is all the Lord. Salvation is for everyone. Never says that. He's not even promising to go to Nineveh. He says salvation is from the Lord. I would think this. He's merely giving God the credit for his physical deliverance that he fixates upon. He's saying, in effect, the salvation which I've experienced came from the Lord. You know what he wants to do? He wants to go back home. He wants to go to Jerusalem. He wants to go to the temple. He wants to offer sacrifices. He wants to get back into the hub of his own religion where he was comfortable, where he was functioning before God sent him away to Nineveh. And he's saying to God, get me out of here and I'll go back. And I will be the best of what I used to be before you intervened and sent me away. I will offer sacrifices of praise and worship and so on. How gladly Jonah would have gone back to the old life before God commissioned him to a new life. And some of us think that that's the sort of choice we've got. Listen, Lord, I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to fix that. I'm not going to change this aspect of my character. And I mentioned jealousy and envy and lie telling and all the rest of it last night. And you know what? Just let me go on with that big character defect. Just let me go on. And I will praise you. And I will worship. And I will do the best I can. But don't expect me to deal with that. I'll be the best version of that old person before you intervene. But you see, that's not an option. It's not an option for Jonah. So what lessons do we learn from this? Well, you can see lessons for Israel in this. Because Jonah typified the stubborn rebellion of God's people Israel in that day. There are such parallels. Just as Jonah disobeyed God's word, Israel disobeyed God's law. Just as Jonah refused to carry out his task of preaching to the Gentiles, so too did the nation of Israel. Just as Jonah calls on God for deliverance without genuine repentance, so too did Israel, cyclically. 
Just as Jonah, the outward trappings of righteousness and religion, the right forms, the right terms, but lack genuine righteousness, so too did Israel. It's the story of their nation. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came, that's what he found in the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You remember the Lord Jesus uncovered and condemned the smug, self-righteous hypocrisy of those leaders of Israel. And Jonah is the same. He's chaffing at the thought of the repentance and forgiveness of the Assyrians. He doesn't want it to happen. He's out of sync with God. You think about the Pharisees. You think about the story of the prodigal son, never mind the prodigal prophet. And you think about the older son. Speaking of Israel and all its self-righteous religious hypocrisy. And you think about that bristling of the Pharisees as they heard the story of the prodigal son. And their position was represented by the older son who refused to come in and share the joy of the father in the recovery of the sinner. Who refused to, to share in that rejoicing and stands outside, stands apart, stands above the events and quotes all his good deeds. He didn't go to the far country, he did it, he did this. And why has he been disadvantaged? All about him. There's quite a lot of parallels there. Do you remember the Pharisees protested against the fact that the Lord Jesus spent so much time with publicans and with sinners and not with them? And do you remember the story of the two who go up to the temple to pray and the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee? The Pharisee is just so dismissive of that tax collector. You see, that was the condition, the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. And it culminated in their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You see, their self-righteous hypocrisy eventually finds its full expression in the rejection of God. Because that's what self-righteousness ultimately brings. A rejection of of God and a delight in self. So just also as Jonah's disobedience was actually the means of God bringing the sailors and the Assyrians to salvation, so actually God would do the same with Israel. Romans chapter 11. I see then they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. And the present distress of Israel is not their final um, outcome, God's got things for them as revealed in scripture but by their transgression salvation has come to the Gentiles, Paul says to make them jealous now if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles how much more will their fulfilment be you see God is able and he's sovereign to, to use even the disobedience of Israel and the disobedience of Jonah to bring blessing God's will cannot be conquered by our will God's purpose cannot be overthrown by our disobedience God's salvation cannot be hemmed in by the walls that we build. God will use different means. So then what lesson can we learn this morning? One big lesson from this. The danger of superficial spirituality. You remember in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, the church at Sardis and they receive a letter from the Lord Jesus in the third chapter. And he says, I know your deeds. He says, I know all about you. That you have a name. That you're alive. But actually, 
you're dead. You have a name. But that name is not the truth. Your name is that you're alive. The reality is that you're dead. And the superficial reputation that they possessed was not reflective of their true spiritual condition. You see, my superficial spirituality can be detected as can yours be. And here are some ways to detect it in your own circumstances. Firstly, superficial spirituality relies heavily on forms and procedures and structures. You look at what the Pharisees did. You see, God didn't give them enough of that for their satisfaction, so they produced a whole bunch of it themselves. Form and structures and procedures and so on, none of which was of God, all of which was designed by them so that they could create a hierarchical system of self-promotion, self-righteousness, self-whatever. And it wasn't of God, but it was something they created for themselves. Secondly, superficial spirituality preys only in dire circumstances. So one writer put it this way, it's motivated by a crisis and is manifested by a foxhole prayer. You know, when you've got your tin helmet on and the shells are all landing round about you and you're, you're praying a prayer out of dire circumstances. It's also self-word and orientation. So that superficial spirituality is obsessed by yourself. If you're offended, if you're slighted, how this affects me, how this is actually going to work for my benefit and my thought process is all about me. It also seems insensitive or oblivious to personal sin, yet very acutely sensitive to other people's sin. The Lord Jesus spoke about this and he spoke about the you know, the, the speck of dust in someone's eye and the big beam coming out of your eye. So a hypersensitivity to other people's sin and yet a dullness to your own. It also manifests itself in a depth or a superficial, not a depth, a superficial um, level of intimacy with God that produces virtually no evangelical desires so you basically build a wall jump inside and hide there like the last days that's the last days so we're just going to huddle together and fight it usually is a very narrow band of concern even evangelically so we end up praying things like this Lord bless our missionaries bless our Bless our, our, my. And the focus, if it is evangelical, gets squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and we forget that God's a God of the whole world. That God's a global God. That God cannot be restricted in his concerns and activity to the barriers that we build and to the dynamics that we create. 
God is, God is a big God. It also tends to distort doctrine, superficial spirituality, in order to accommodate or excuse our own sin. And so we'll find some sort of justification somewhere for the way we behave. When you think about that and you examine in detail, and it's a good process to do that, and you examine Jonah's prayer, you find this that it lacks. It's lacking. And we're going to see that Jonah's deliverance was all of God's grace. Jonah does not get out of that fish because he prays a certain prayer. It's not a form of words that gets him out of that fish. It's the grace of God. It's the compassion of God. It's the mercy of God. It's the things that he knew about God that he didn't want to be effective in other people's life, but he wanted effective in his own life. You think about it. We pray for things for ourselves that we really wouldn't like to see in other people's lives. We, we, we rejoice in the God of our salvation, but we're not that bothered if he becomes the God of someone else's salvation. Not that bothered. We're going fine. You see, Jonah, Jonah was a nationalist. Jonah was a person with a narrow focus. Jonah was self-obsessed in it. Jonah was self-righteous in it. And Jonah has a very big lesson to learn that he doesn't perhaps ever learn. What is he in chapter 4? There's no indication that he ever learns it. It's a strange ending to the book. And so we've read what some call the psalm of the prodigal prophet. But don't just think about it for Jonah. Think about it for yourself. Let us all think about it. Are we, like Jonah, constricting in our mind and in our heart the parameters in which we think God operates through us and in us? Let's pray and then we'll have coffee um, later.